0: Thank you, Josh. Well, today is Palm Sunday or Cloak Sunday, Kirk. And it anticipates Resurrection Sunday, which is next week. These two Sundays are bookends of a week 2,000 years ago that was filled with conflict, with hatred, with pain, with sacrifice, with love, with grace, with compassion with fulfilled prophecies, and the most world-changing event that ever took place in human history, the death, burial, and resurrection of God the Son. It's the very reason why, as Christians, we are here. It's the very reason why our hope is sure, as we were just singing. I want to begin, uh, before I tie into that, Uh, I'm, I'm going to be looking at a couple of passages today that lead to that week as a result of what we see today the very conclusion of the last verses today are going to take us directly to passover week because what ends today is the beginning of the attempt to destroy jesus christ now um, i want first of all to tell you where i was last sunday (laughs) and uh To explain a little bit about how that connects actually with our passage today Uh, years ago two of my friends in the officers christian fellowship asked me to do their funerals thank you so much Uh, one uh, and 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 the elders at that time i brought it to them they gave me leave to do that whenever that happened Uh, one was uh, eric he was a young army colonel at uh, west point taught there who had cancer and his, he knew he was going to be dying relatively soon. Uh, Bob was my colleague at Bryan College who got me involved in the OCF and I, where um, I've been teaching at the OCF Conference Center for uh, the last 38 years, and, and that's just been a huge part of our lives. Our children's memories are from there, uh, and, and that's where I became close friends with Eric. Uh, his funeral was eight years ago, and Bob's was last Saturday. That's where we were, uh, at the OCF Conference Center in Pennsylvania. Uh, the thing is, when, you, when you're conducting funerals is not really a hobby one wants to have. But when they're dear friends whom you love deeply, and you know what they're doing right now is rejoicing in the presence of Jesus, it's a different matter altogether. It really is. So there was celebration, and Bob's story was just great. Uh, He had actually retired from the Army in his his 20-plus years and uh, had served in World War II and Korea and Vietnam and uh, then went back to school and earned his Ph.D. at William & Mary in American colonial history and began his second career at Bryan College in 1975. Betsy and I met him and Nancy there, and we became close friends. Um, he, he, Bob desc- described being there as being a square peg in a square hole. About 12 years ago, Bob sent me, Well, Bob had asked, we, like, as I said, we became close. He asked me to do this funeral. Uh, he, he sent me about 12 years ago his spiritual autobiography. Uh, and he said, uh, Gary, this is not an early alert. I'm healthy, uh, but uh, I hope it's not too long. Well, it was 33 pages, single-spaced, spiritual biography. It was long. But it told the story of someone whom everybody thought was a really good man, a good person. But he was elbowing his way through the military channels and uh, it was a story that was brutally honest. He described how his life was built all around promotion and success to the point where, now here's the honesty part, he would help his peers enlarge their vices so that they could destroy their careers like for example uh, helping a young cap- another captain get drunk who then made a pass at a colonel's wife things like that were examples that he gave bob wrote this quote those incidents would lessen the pool for promotion how's that for honesty Outwardly, he said, I possessed the virtues of a Boy Scout and was teased for my naivety. But I had learned the lesson that it was easy to deceive people. He also deceived a young girl named Nancy who was a baby Christian, and he told her that he was a Christian too. But after they were married, he wrote this, It did not take my bride long to realize that I viewed the Bible as a collection of myths and legends similar to the accounts of King Arthur and his knights. During the first 18 months of our marriage, my wife wept more than she did in the other 56 years. Now, he had a long story. I'm going to bring it to a close by saying he ended up in an OCF Bible study on an army base in Texas, and God's truth and grace wrapped around his soul. And he was saved. And it was an honor to tell the story of my friend. Before I tie it into the text, the one thing that I think you'd appreciate that happened on Saturday, there was a man there in his late 70s uh, named Ron. He was not an OCF guy. He was one of Bob's neighbors. And uh, he told me after the service, my life has changed today, and then moved off. Later on, someone came up to me and said, you know, Ron over there, he just told me that today his life had changed. And then still later, a third person came up and said, you know, um, Ron just said his life changed today. So I found Ron. <laughs> Gave him my my uh, uh, my contact information. So that, that was just, that's just an added thing. It's just a sweet thing that uh, Bob would rejoice in for his neighbor. Well... Here's the tie-in from Bob's story to our passage. Uh, Before my friend became a follower of Jesus Christ, he knew that religion was all about the externals, checking off enough boxes to make God happy, and you go to heaven. He was absolutely oblivious to his own sin. He saw that actually in the rearview mirror the magnitude of it, and he totally lacked compassion for anybody around him. He was a Pharisee, and Bob and and the Pharisees were absorbed in the outward form of religion, checking off the boxes while ignoring the essence of forgiveness and love and grace. Knowing Jesus and following him will produce a life of compassion. And you know, these days when we look at what's going on in our world and our culture and the news media and everywhere else, it just seems like every disagreement does not move us into nuanced discussion to pursue truth, but instead moves towards polarization where uh, we then find ourselves in moral outrage, and that's on both sides, and it's just a crazy place for a culture to be. So here's a diagnostic, diagnostic question. When you see people who are suffering, do you respond with compassion, with a listening ear to the person that, for example, just at work who's hurting i 'm not asking your emotion how you're wired emotionally, if you emote, if you have an emotional quotient, an eQ on a scale of one to ten where would you place yourself that 's not what i 'm asking what i 'm asking is when you see people who are suffering, do you ignore that, or do you do what you can to step up and Help them. Do you ignore it or not? We have two paintings in the foyer that depict the compassion that accompanies the gospel. The one painting is of the prodigal son. Do you remember when the son repented and came home? The father's arms were just open with compassion. The older brother, he was the Pharisee. The Pharisee would say, but wait a minute. He has checked no boxes. He wants forgiveness without earning it. Exactly. That's what grace is. This other painting is the story of the Good Samaritan who had no social obligation whatsoever to help the Jewish man in the ditch. But yet, he put himself out for him. And it affected his pocketbook. And the victim never got a chance to say thank you. And there was no gathering afterwards where the Samaritan was presented with a plaque for his community service. It just didn't happen. No, what he just did was actually he just behaved like Jesus wanted him to. That's what that story is about. Both of these stories capture the essence of who we are to be as followers of Jesus, people of redemption and compassion. Now, two weeks ago, Uh, Lewis described how the Pharisees would hedge the law by adding their own traditions, specifically about the Sabbath, the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. The reason for that fourth commandment was to clear your calendar so that you have the time to take the time to worship with God's people, not in bondage to your calendar. But the Pharisees had taken that which was intended to, by God to be a day of freedom and worship and joy. And turned it into a day of dread, just wrapped up into layers of legalistic bondage. Well, today's study, what I want us to do today is to look at that last episode in chapter two that we we've already. I, I want to bring in some high points from that, and then look at the second and look at the next episode in chapter three, verses one through six. So, if you're not in the Gospel of Mark, you'll you might want to. Uh, Uh, go back to that passage this is the climax of five conflict stories of jesus against the pharisees and uh, it and to pick up the threads you remember the story back in chapter 2 verses 23 through 28 really it's the same story we see in chapter 3 only kind of worse Uh, the one in chapter 3 is kind of worse the dispute was about the traditions of men, not about the laws of God, the traditions of men. It was about Jesus and his authority, and it was also about their total lack of compassion. They're just so full of themselves that they can't be, see beyond themselves. So you'll remember uh, from a couple of weeks ago, from reading the passages, Josh just read it to us, Jesus, uh, the Pharisees had Jesus and his disciples under surveillance. In this first story, They accused the disciples by confronting Jesus with how his disciples had violated God's law on the Sabbath. They did work. Verse 23 says, by picking heads of grain. What's that involved? How does that make sense? Well, what they did was they walked through and first of all, they harvested. They plucked. So that's work. They harvested. They plucked the grain. And second, and actually third, They did threshing and winnowing. How did they do that? Well, they would rub the grain together, separating the grain from the chaff. That's the threshing. And then blow the chaff away. That's the winnowing. And then they would eat it. They broke the Sabbath. Have any of you ever opened up a pistachio nut shell to get to the nut? Okay. This gets really ridiculous. One of the statements that I came across from the Jewish tradition, and it's in one of the Jewish writings called the Mishnah. Sounds very (laughs) self-incriminating. I'm going to quote from it. The rules about the Sabbath are as mountains hanging by a hair, for scripture is scanty and the rules are many. Exactly. Two weeks ago, Lewis described some of the pretty ridiculous layers that have been added to God's law. Now, just in case we were tempted to think, well, that was then. This is now. Things have been updated. uh, Joshua Neuwirth is a major authority in rabbinic circles today, and he wrote a book called A Guide to Practical Observance of the Sabbath," And, And he wrote this in 1988, so it's not that long ago. Just so you know, here is a sampling of the Sabbath laws updated. If the hot water tap is accidentally left on, you cannot turn it off on the Sabbath. If you have gas appliances, escaping gas can be turned off, but not in the normal way. You have to use the back of your hand or your elbow. You cannot squeeze a lemon into a glass of iced tea, but you can squeeze a lemon on a piece of fish. Why? I have no idea. Because you cannot light a fire on the Sabbath, this means you can't turn electric lights on or off on the Sabbath, but you can solve the problem by using a timer. Now, this was in 1988. Today, we'd say, Alexa, break the Sabbath. You can't turn on an air conditioner on the Sabbath, but you can persuade a Gentile to do it. You can't bathe with a bar of soap on the Sabbath, but you can use liquid soap because you don't have to work to you know, make it soft to get the lather going. You kind of get the idea. Remember Tevyah and his song in Fiddler on the Roof? Tradition. For Orthodox Jews, the proper observance of the Sabbath is one means in their thinking for the redemption of Israel. Their theologians wouldn't quite say that it's salvation by good works, but for most people it means exactly that. Now, the focus of this kind of legalism is not on the Messiah who will come and fulfill the law. It's rather on how we can please God by checking off the boxes and obeying the details that are not even a part of God's law. Later, a few chapters later in Mark's gospel, chapter 7, verse 8, Jesus will indict the Pharisees for this. He says, Neglecting the commandment of the law, you hold fast to the tradition of men. Now, there's a big misunderstanding that we might easily fall into. If you read the New Testament very much, you might tend to assume that the Pharisees, in the minds of the people in the first century, the Pharisees were the bad guys. That would be wrong. They were very popular. They were respected. They were regarded by the people as the very best that Judaism had to offer. Jesus was saying... The very best Judaism has to offer is not good enough. The very best Judaism has to offer is morally and spiritually corrupt because salvation is not inside ourselves or from within ourselves. Wait a minute, Jesus. You're you're telling me as a Pharisee that I'm not enough? Right. You're telling me that I'll never be enough? Right. Right. You're telling me that I'm a sinner? Exactly. And I'm telling you that apart from me, you have no other place to go. The truth is, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you Shabbat, Sabbath rest. Now, a couple of more things to observe from chapter 2 to take that into chapter 3. Do you remember when the Pharisees challenged Jesus? He replied, look in verse 25, he replied with this challenge, have you never read? Jesus does not say, well, you know, that's your interpretation, and that's what's true for you, what I believe is true for me. No, no. Jesus says, Scripture answers your objection if you understood it correctly, you've just been reading too many rabbinical traditions and not enough scripture. Jesus never, in all of the conflicts that he had with the religious leaders, never criticized their allegiance to God's word. He criticized them for not knowing it well enough. Now, look at the principal statement that Jesus made in verse 27 of chapter 2. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And then he added a statement in verse 28 that is totally unnecessary for his argument. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. I want to just review some of the comments that Lewis made a couple of weeks ago. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. King David, whom Jesus is citing as an example would never have said he was Lord of the Sabbath. Even Moses, the human lawgiver about the Sabbath, would never claim he was Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is claiming a priestly role here, a priestly function of defining what sin is, but he's not only asserting a priestly function, he's asserting a high priestly function. I'm the one who decides what actions break God's law. In other words, I'm the one who decides, in fact, what sin is and later Jesus will say things like you have heard it said but I say unto you and by the way the author of Hebrews spends quite a bit of time of over laying out Jesus pre- high priesthood so when Jesus said this there's actually even more to the claim I am Lord of the Sabbath what he means is that the Sabbath is his, it's his, it's mine, he says. You're standing in my day, It's my day. You are subject to it, and it is subject to me. But there's even more here. He says, don't miss the added word, even. I am Lord even of the Sabbath. In other words, as we will see later, my lordship is over all things. And the Sabbath is one of the created things over which I am Lord. He could have simply said, I am Lord of the Sabbath. But I am Lord even of the Sabbath. Over all things. The Sabbath is one of those things in the created order over which I am Lord. There's an old joke about a group of scientists who challenged God that they could create a human being and therefore the universe no longer needed him and God listened to them patiently and then said to them, okay, I'll tell you what, if you can create life the way I created, I'll make no demands on you as your creator. So the scientists rolled up their sleeves and said, okay, first we collect some dirt and God smiled and said, no, first you make your own dirt. A philosopher from the last last century wrote this. His name is J.M. Spear. And I I printed this off, it's over my desk in my office. The creation does not contain any resting point in itself, but it points beyond itself toward the Creator. The creation does not contain any resting point in itself, but points beyond itself toward the Creator. So, here we are. Chapter 3, bringing these themes over from chapter 2 into this last conflict story. And this last conflict story is a watershed passage that ends with an emotional climax. I believe there is more raw emotion in these verses than in all the others so far. When this story is done, The train has left the station. Over here, you have Jesus who is actually grieving. And over there, you have the Pharisees who have gone mad. And I don't mean angry mad. I mean, they're so furious that they've lost all reason. And then everything flows forward from that watershed. And it's going to end up in Passover week that we just read and sang about. Either you choose Jesus or you oppose Jesus in company with the religious people of his day. So verse 1 tells us this. Here's the last of the conflict stories in this portion of Mark's Gospel. He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. So we're immediately put into this story and immediately introduced to this character. Was this man's condition from birth? Was it a result of a disease? Or an injury like uh, you know, when n- nerves or muscle cut with later atrophy. We don't know. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of the Synoptic Gospels record this story. The only additional detail that we get on this story is from Luke, ever the doctor, who adds that it was his right hand, which maybe implies that he could no longer work. There's a second century document that uh, says he was a stonemason and that his condition was the result of an accident. Truth is, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know his name. We never hear his voice. He's not commended for his faith. But at least he does have enough faith in the authority of Jesus that when Jesus tells him what to do, come over here and then raise your hand. He does that. He obeys what Jesus says. What I'm saying is, though, there's really more that we don't know about this man than we do know. He's kind of the invisible man in this story uh you want to see a picture of him i have a picture of him if you take your bulletin and look on the front cover i found a picture of him it's from a a mosaic in the cathedral in sicily italy that was done in 1172 so that's what he you can tell which one jesus is he's the one with the halo always walked around with the halo uh and and The man is not stretching out his hand. He's holding it up with the other hand. The disciples of Jesus are behind Jesus, and the Pharisees are over stage left. You can barely see part of one. Uh, What's interesting is that the Pharisees were really the point of this story, so they're not quite in this picture accurately. In, In my brief search, there's just not a lot of art portraying this story, even though all three Gospels Contain it. Maybe because it seems to most readers to be kind of cut and dried. You know, it's not, there's just not much to it. What I'm suggesting to you is that's the opposite is the case. This is one of the most emotionally dramatic stories that we have in the Bible. Jesus is the one who creates the conflict here. The man does not have a fatal illness that can't wait until the next day, lest he take a turn for the worst. In fact, as far as we know, this was not a healing service. I assume the man was there for Jesus' teaching. Jesus could have said, hey, you know, um, excuse me, come, come, come and see me tomorrow. But the Pharisees are kind of going insane. <laughs> and Jesus just brings it out into the open. He challenges them to see themselves as sinners in need of a Savior. Verse 2 says they were watching him to see if he would heal them on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. I want you to think with me about the logic of this. They were not watching him to see if he lied, watching him to see if he committed adultery, or coveted his neighbor's wife, or took God's name in vain, or stole, or murdered, or any of the Ten Commandments. They just knew he could not be the Messiah. They'd all agreed that when Messiah came, he would conform to their expectations. Messiah would not call them sinners. Messiah would not have compassion upon people whom they regarded as outcasts. Messiah would not spend time with, the, with sinners and, and spend all of his time with the broken and the hurting and the wounded. Messiah would bring prosperity and victory over Rome and would keep them in their elevated place of esteem, and Jesus threatens that whole picture. I want you to step back from this story for just a moment. Remember, they've been keeping Jesus under surveillance long enough to know that the issue is not could he perform the miracle, but would he? Not, hey, let's see if he heals him and then we'll believe in him as the Messiah. But if he heals, then we'll have something to accuse him of. What kind of of world, of logic, do they inhabit? Their stance against Jesus is non-falsifiable. Jesus has given them scripture and evidence, but their minds are blinded by sin. That is an important lesson for us to keep in mind. If you ever wondered what happened to truth in our culture, I know we sometimes tend to assume that that uh, uh, truth is determined by the size of the peer group of the people who happen to agree with me. But ultimately, truth is found in God's word. Thy word is truth, said Jesus. Jesus over and over said, it is written, it is written, it is written. And he also said, used the present tense, it is saying, it is saying, it is saying. Those are the two ways he quotes scripture. It is saying because the word of God is still saying. It's active, powerful, right? It's alive. And here... He has just finished confronting them by saying, Have you not read? So Jesus presses the issue with them. In verse 3, He said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And He said to them, that is not to the man, not to His disciples, not to the crowds, but to the Pharisees. He said to them, Is it lawful? He doesn't say, Is it merciful? He's going to address mercy later on. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to kill? Now, Jesus' question deals with extremes. I know that. To do good and harm, to rescue and kill. I mean, at least, but you, know, you would say, at least you could answer that for Jesus, couldn't you? And the answer is no. They kept silent. And the tense of the verb there means they kept on and kept on, just being absolutely stone-faced. Jesus' eyes roamed over each of them, nothing. Jesus' question, by the way, is aimed at something very, very specific because it's actually not good to do harm or to kill the other six days of the week either, right? But here's the deal. Jesus is confronting them with this question, And immediately after this, they are the ones who are exposed as the ones who will do harm. As the ones who will kill. On what day? The Sabbath. Verse 5. After looking around at them with anger. And by the way, the word looking around means face by face, by face, by face. It's the same word that Mark uses later when Jesus looked around to see who touched him in the crowd. Same word. Looking around at them, face by face. In fact, Luke adds the word all, all of them. Jesus took the time to examine each and every face for any hint of God's compassion. You? You? you, no, you, no. This is as clear an invitation, a just as I am moment as you will see. Making eye contact one by one, but behind every face, Jesus sees stubborn hearts, of unrighteous self-righteousness. For Jesus, this has to be one of the saddest moments of his ministry. In fact, the next verb is a continuous idea. Grieved and grieved and grieved and grieved at their hardness of heart. He said to the man... Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Did you already forget about the poor man who's standing there? <laughs> it's the invisible man, he kind of is. Doesn't say a word. Here's the sum total of Jesus' conversation with him. First, get up and come forward, and then stretch out your hand. That's it. Jesus didn't touch him uh, like the leper. Jesus didn't command to be healed like the paralytic. He didn't even say, if you stretch out your hand, it will be healed. He didn't do anything. The man just stretches out his hand, and it is whole. He didn't tell him to come back uh, six months for a checkup or, or sign up for physical therapy. Just stretch it out, and his shoulder muscles lifted it, and that shriveled hand filled out with flesh, muscle, and new nerve endings. And Jesus, what is he doing? What did he do? We didn't see. What did he do? What did he say? We're not sure. One writer put it not even the most rabid Pharisee could call that a work that was forbidden on the Sabbath. But they're blinded by sin. They don't say, okay, okay, we get it now. This must be God at work. We'll sing praise God from whom all blessings flow. No. You know, these days uh, when you hear things on the news, Now, people's feelings are the news. So if you had a 2021 news team interviewing the Pharisees, they might ask, how did you feel when Jesus healed the leper? How did you feel when Jesus healed the paralytic? How did you feel when Jesus said he was forgiving the man's sins? How did you feel when Jesus spent time with social outcasts? How did you feel when Jesus zapped you with Scripture how did you feel when he then claimed to be Lord over the Sabbath and everything else? How did you feel when Jesus looked at each one of you face to face, eyeball to eyeball, and challenged your understanding of yourself, your sin, and God's truth? How did you feel? I'll tell you how they're feeling. They're mad. And I don't mean just angry. They're about to go mad. You, Luke, Luke uses the word rage And what Luke does is he takes the Greek word for mind and puts a negation in front of it. What it means, you know, you've heard the phrase presence of mind. This means literally absence of mind. It's going to become a a culture of of outrage that will crucify Jesus. Well, verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him before we get to the meat of this, who are the Herodians? Where would they come from? The Herodians were a Jewish political group that supported the dynasty of the Herods, who were very unpopular. They saw Jesus as a threat to their status quo. So the Herodians and the Pharisees have got nothing in common except for one thing, they both hate Jesus. That's it. And they took counsel with the Herodians as to how. Not if. That's a done deal. They're, okay, how are we going to do this? They might destroy, and destroy in the context means to kill him. If you were to read the last words of this story again, immediately began conspiring as to how they might destroy him. In the Greek text, the last word is not him. In the Greek text, the very last word of the very last verse of this very last conflict story is the word destroy. That's it. It's a a gut punch. (laughs) On what day? On the Sabbath. In their minds, they're going to do it. It's just a matter of how. But now they're going to plan it. I want you to think about this. To heal on the Sabbath is a crime deserving death. To plot murder against the healer on the Sabbath is perfectly acceptable. Sin is not logical. They're making plans. Now, I want you to get this. They're making plans on the Sabbath to kill the Lord of the Sabbath. They're making plans on the Sabbath to kill the creator of the Sabbath. And to any first century reader who would read this, and to any 21st century reader who would read this, it would prove that the very best Judaism has to offer, the Pharisees, are sinners who need a Savior. There are two points that I want us to take home to reflect on for for the next few minutes. In the context of Mark's gospel, what's on display here is how sin destroys everything even the one who came to destroy sin. Here are the two points. First, sin is stubborn. It will harden your heart. And then second, sin is irrational. It leads to madness, repressing the mind. Let's think about those two, first of all. First of all, sin is stubborn. It will harden your heart. Sin ignores facts like Jesus is not opposing the teaching of Scripture. He's supporting it. He's quoting it. He's totally in line with the Old Testament, and yet his power could only come from God. He is from God. It's clear. In Romans 1, we see that sin likes to drag others down with it. Now, it doesn't mean in friendship there will be no camaraderie in hell. But it does mean that sin doesn't want to be destroyed alone. Sin blames others. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. King Saul blamed the people. It's what we do until we're confronted by looking into the mirror of the Word of God that we must repent, but sin doesn't want to repent. Sin doesn't like to be reminded of its own nature. And without repentance, sin leads to further sin. Sin bears its own compounded self-interest. Okay? It will harden your heart. You remember Jesus looked around at every face. You? No. You? No. You? No. I want you to contrast that total absence of mercy and compassion that grieved Jesus' heart, with Peter's denial. He denied Jesus three times. And When that rooster crowed, Peter looked at Jesus. Jesus looked at Peter. Their eyes locked. There's another eyeball-to-eyeball confrontation. What did Peter do? He saw his sin. He immediately repented, went out and wept bitterly, because he knew who Jesus was and who he was. So how stubborn is your sin? Or is it enough to repent and to turn to him, maybe even to say, my life has changed today? So first, sin is stubborn. It will harden your heart. We need to turn to Jesus. Secondly, sin is irrational. It will repress and regress your mind. Truth offends. And I think this is going to become more and more an issue for us as believers. Are you willing to pay the price of truth in a woke world? But, Gary, if I'm clear about my faith in Jesus, about what makes me tick, if I stand up for truth, I may lose my job. Yes. You don't see that coming? For some, it will. I heard John Stone Street make the comment this week that he felt we need to develop a theology of losing our jobs. Jesus calls us to hard things. And I think it's only going to get harder. This story ends with, plotting of Jesus' death. If we follow Jesus faithfully, there will be people in authority aligned against truth, and they will not necessarily be reasonable. Yeah, but Gary, if I just explain carefully to them, they will be tolerant of my biblical views. Don't expect people who disagree with your worldview to be reasonable. Your worldview threatens their worldview. And the more rational and reasonable Jesus was, the more crazy his enemies became. Jesus calls us to follow him. And if we do, we will be on the cultural radar as troublemakers. We're moving to a place where logic and evidence and argument no longer carry weight. Now, I believe that people in God's image can't, can't maintain living that way indefinitely But for now, that's where we are and where we are headed. Truth is truth, and it cannot be denied. And God's truth is filled with compassion and love and grace, one-on-one, one-on-one. So first, sin is stubborn. It will harden your heart. Secondly, sin is irrational. It will repress your mind. But Jesus will redeem both heart and mind to the glory of God. Both heart and mind. uh, Paul said, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your sweet reasonableness be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will mount guard on your hearts and your minds. Your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So we come unto him those of us who labor and are heavy laden and that's where we find rest lord i thank you for the truth of your word thank you for this study and i ask lord that we would be people of compassion of grace forgiveness love truth lord may we be faithful servants we pray your blessing as we go forth from this place today that we would be more deeply committed to living out what it means to love Jesus. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.